Chapter Six, Section Seven of the Promise of American Life by Herbert Crawley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Chapter Six, Section Seven, The Reformation of Theodore Roosevelt. Before finishing this account of Mr. Roosevelt's services as a reformer and his place in the reforming movement a serious objection on the score of consistency must be fairly faced even admitting that mr roosevelt has dignified reform by identifying it with a program of constructive national legislation does the fundamental purpose of his reforming legislation differ essentially from that of mr bryan or mr hurst can he be called the founder of a new national democracy when the purpose of democracy from his point of view remains substantially the Jeffersonian ideal of equal rights for all and special privileges for none. If, in one respect, he has been emancipating American democracy from the Jeffersonian bondage, he has in another respect been tightening the bonds, because he has continued to identify democracy with the legal constitution of a system of insurgent, ambiguous, and indiscriminate individual rights. The validity of such a criticism from the point of view of this book cannot be disputed. The figure of the square deal, which Mr. Roosevelt has flourished so vigorously in public addresses, is a translation into the American vernacular of the Jeffersonian principle of equal rights, and in Mr. Roosevelt's dissertations upon the American ideal, he has expressly disclaimed the notion of any more positive definition of the purpose of American democracy. Moreover, his favorite figure gives a sinister application to his assertions that the principle of equal rights is being violated. If the American people are not getting a square deal, it must mean that they are having the cards stacked against them, and in that case the questions of paramount importance are, who are stacking the cards, and how can they be punished? These are precisely the questions which Hearst is always asking, and Hearstism is seeking to answer. Neither has Mr. Roosevelt himself entirely escaped the misleading effects of his own figure. He has too frequently talked as if his opponents deserved to be treated as dishonest sharpers, and he has sometimes behaved as if his suspicions of unfair play on their part were injuring the coolness of his judgment. But at bottom and in the long run, Mr. Roosevelt is too fair-minded a man and too patriotic a citizen to become much the victim of his dangerous figure of the square deal. He inculcates for the most part in his political sermons a spirit, not of suspicion and hatred, but of mutual forbearance and confidence, and his program of reform attaches more importance to a revision of the rules of the game than to the treatment of the winners under the old rules as one would treat a dishonest gambler. In truth, Mr. Roosevelt has been building either better than he knows or better than he cares to admit. The real meaning of his program is more novel and more radical than he himself has publicly proclaimed. It implies a conception of democracy and its purpose very different from the Jeffersonian doctrine of equal rights. Evidences of deep antagonism can be discerned between the Hamiltonian method and spirit, represented by Mr. Roosevelt, and a conception of democracy, which makes it consist fundamentally in the practical realization of any system of equal rights. The distrust with which thoroughgoing Jeffersonians regard Mr. Roosevelt's nationalizing program is a justifiable distrust because efficient and responsible national organization would be dangerous, either to, or in, 
the sort of democracy which the doctrine of equal rights encourages, a democracy of suspicious discontent, of selfish claims, of factious agitation, and of individual and class aggression. A thoroughly responsible and efficient national organization would be dangerous in such a democracy, because it might well be captured by some combination of local, individual, or class interests, and the only effective way to guard against such a danger is to substitute for the Jeffersonian democracy of individual rights a democracy of individual and social improvement. A democracy of individual rights, that is, must either suffer reconstruction by the logic of a process of efficient national organization, or else it may pervert that organization to a service of its own ambiguous, contradictory, and in the end subversive political purposes. A better justification for these statements must be reserved for the succeeding chapter, but in the meantime, I will take the risk asserting that Mr. Roosevelt's nationalism really implies a democracy of individual and social improvement. His nationalizing program has in effect questioned the value of certain fundamental American ideas, and if Mr. Roosevelt has not himself outgrown these ideas, his misreading of his own work need not be a matter of surprise. It is what one would expect from the prophet of the strenuous life. He has preached the doctrine that the paramount and almost the exclusive duty of the American citizen, his intelligence has been the handmaid of his will, and the balance between those faculties, so finely exemplified in Abraham Lincoln, has been destroyed by sheer exuberance of moral energy. But although his intelligence is merely the servant of his will, it is at least the willing and competent servant of a single-minded master. If it has not been leavened by the rigorous routine of its work, neither has it been cheapened, and the service has constantly been growing better worthwhile. During the course of his public career, his original integrity of character has been intensified by the stress of his labors, his achievements, his experiences, and his exhortations. An individuality such as his, wrought with so much consistent purpose out of much variety of experience, brings with it an intellectual economy of its own, and a sincere and useful sort of intellectual enlightenment. He may be figured as a Thor, wielding with power and effect, a sledgehammer in the cause of national righteousness, and the sympathetic observer, who is not stunned by the noise of the hammer, may occasionally be rewarded by the sight of something more illuminating than a piece of rebellious metal beaten into shape. He may be rewarded by certain unexpected gleams of insight, as if the face of the sledgehammer were worn bright by hard service and flashed in the sunlight. Mr. Roosevelt sees as far ahead and as much as he needs to see. He has an almost infallible sense of where to strike next. He has an almost infallible sense of where to strike the next important blow, and even during the ponderous labors of the day, he prudently and confidently lays out the task of tomorrow. Thus, while he has contributed to the liberation of American intelligence, chiefly in the sense that he has given his fellow countrymen something to think about, he is very far from being a blind, narrow, or unenlightened leader. Doubtless the only practical road of advance at present is laborious, slow, and not too enlightened. For the time being the hammer is a mightier weapon than the sword or the pen. Americans have the habit of action rather than of thought. Like their forebears in England, they begin to do things, because their common sense tells them that such things have to be done, and then at a later date think over the accomplished fact. A man in public life who told them that their noble national theory 
was ambiguous and distracting, and that many of their popular catchwords were false, and exercised a mischievous influence on public affairs, would do so at his own personal risk and cost. The task of plain speaking must be suggested and justified by the achievement of a considerable body of national reconstructive legislation, and must even then devolve largely upon men who have, from the political point of view, little to gain or to lose by their apparent heresies. The fact, however, that a responsible politician like Mr. Roosevelt must be an example more of moral than of intellectual independence, increases rather than diminishes the eventual importance of consistent thinking and plain speaking, as essential parts of the work of political reform. A reforming movement, whose supporters never understand its proper meaning and purpose, is sure in the end to go astray. It is all very well for Englishmen to do their thinking after the event, because tradition lies at the basis of their national life. But Americans, as a nation, are consecrated to the realization of a group of ideas, and ideas to be fruitful must square both with the facts to which they are applied and with one another. Mr. Roosevelt and his hammer must be accepted gratefully as the best available type of national reformer. But the day may and should come when a national reformer will appear, who can be figured more in the guise of St. Michael, armed with a flaming sword and winged for flight. End of chapter 6